Welcome everybody to another um, episode of the Edge of Futures podcast. Uh, we are on to 109 now, so uh, we're ticking along nicely. Um, we'll have to think about another prize when we get to um, another significant number, um, like number 111 or something. So uh, don't forget, you can uh, you can follow us uh, um, or you can go and subscribe to our podcast uh, using Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Head over um Give us a listening. We've got a really nice back catalogue. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Go on, follow us on on Twitter. Twitter, that's the one. Twitter. <laughs> it's been a long day. Twitter.com forward slash Edge of Futurists. Yeah, get follow us for updates uh, on everything we're doing. Obviously, the, the kind of we see the podcast as kind of our bread and butter, bring it, uh, bringing that out every week, but there's lots more on the go as well. Uh, yeah, subscribe on youtube.com forward slash edge of futurists as well. Yeah, we've been involved in some partnership work with C Learning and Google for Education on a series of three webinars that we've been working on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did share experiences and impact with teachers. Um, uh, with leaders, sorry, but that was that was a couple of weeks ago. You can go and check that out on our YouTube channel if you wish to. Um, but we've also got two more events coming up. One on the 22nd of October at 1.30. That's going to be focused on teachers using technology, particularly around Google for Education. And then one for security people, all the, the tech people who make it all happen on the 26th of November at the same time, 1.30 till 3. Head over to enterprise.edgefuturist.com to sign up today for free. Yeah, we're, we're really excited, as you can tell from the tone of Ben's voice, but uh, our tonight's guest um, is Deborah Kidd. Yeah, I, I didn't even. I've not even put in about that she's a doctor. I think Deborah wrote this, and she's been too kind on herself. But we'll we'll mention that as we go through. Yeah, Deborah's uh, worked across primary, secondary, FE, and HE in all um, education settings, uh, and is the author of four education books. She works internationally now, in and out of the classroom. We're going to talk about some of that, what it means to be in and out of the classroom today, with children and teachers exploring how to make learning matter. Hello. Evening, Deborah. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, it's lovely to have a, a fellow Northerner. Um, <laughs> is, is, is Saddleworth? Is it? Is it Lancashire or is it? Is it Yorkshire still? Well, it is Lancashire, but it used to be Yorkshire, so it's very controversial. And there are still people who plant white roses in the gardens because they object. To <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know why anybody would ever do that. Obviously, you, you cross. You cross. You, you crossed over to the winner of the War of Roses again. <laughs> uh, uh, not a historian, but actually it turns out uh, the, the red roses actually are not even from Lancashire. I found that out the other day. Actually, it's based uh, in the south of Yorkshire. I didn't even know that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's true. Anyway. It sounded good and up, didn't it? So, Deborah, there's a bit of a theme, and we always ask this question uh, in regards to who we have on the podcast. What does COVID look like, and what does your work look like um, during the, um, I suppose, pandemic is still going on? We'll still use that term. Uh, I think I think it was it became clear what it looked like when uh, I did my mileage record for my accounts the other day, and between the first of September and the twentieth of March, I'd done twelve and a half thousand miles in my car, and then from the twentieth of March to this set, well to now, I think I've done about twenty eight. <laughs> so <Yeah>. basically, <laughs> I've been at home, um, but I've had I've been working a lot. Like this week, I'm in Brussels. I would have been there face to face but we've been doing it all online. 
uh, it's just different. It's a different world and it's not the same because, you know, you're getting all that screen tiredness and, and a bit isolated, you know, I'm sort of <laughs> desperate for company when my husband gets home from work and stuff. But it's, it's just different. It's, it's very strange. Um, and, and dare I ask, are we allowed to ask what work uh, took you to, to Brussels online, even if it's virtual? Yeah. Um, I'm working with their teachers rewriting their curriculum. So, you know, we, we're sort of doing it through Google Docs and, and Zoom and all that kind of thing and trying to make it feel like a team meeting, although it's, quite, it's not quite the same as being there. But, yeah, just rewriting back their curriculum to try and make it a bit more... Well, they wanted they, they wanted it to make to feel a bit more robust in terms of making sure they, that the children had a clear journey through school, but really they want to put in that kind of ethical, humane dimension, the global goals. Make sure that the, the children are not just picking up facts, but they're actually going forward into the world, feeling like they can effect change. Yeah, it sounds um, it sounds sounds really interesting, and obviously we first came across you um, online. Um, and some of the things that you uh, have, have shared on social media. I know Dan struggled to get the word Twitter out today, um, <laughs> but, that, but that's where that's where we we, we saw you. Um, and you, you've 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 got some some real thoughts about the UK education system and uh, the work that you're doing. I wonder if you could um, just just give us a taster. Maybe not all of it, but just a bit of a taster about what about where you are and your thoughts on the UK. You'll have to keep keep interrupting me. I'll just witter on and (laughs) about an hour later, you'll just press stop. Um, I think, where are we in UK education? I think we're a decade into a very impoverished view of what education is Um, and an impoverished view that is increasingly becoming very um sort of insular you know there's a there's an in-group of people that get all the funding for initiatives there's an in-group of people that if they say say the right ideological things are on the inside of the circle and everybody else is on the outside of the circle and and i think what that does is it it creates a a, a two-tiered effect there are the people who don't care and just plow their own field which i think is great there's a lot of head teachers out there saying well I can tick this box and I can tick that box, but I can still say, stay true to my ethos. And then there are the kind of eager beaver pleasers. I don't know what, what it's driven, if it's driven by fear of Ofsted or if it's driven by wanting to be on that inner circle. But the way that fashions are flowing through school in terms of very strict, well, it used to be zero tolerance and no dis, no excuses in it, but now it's warm strict, like that's somehow better. Um, we've got that going on where schools are policing kids colors of masks you know during the middle of a pandemic or refusing to let them put their coats on when it's cold uh, because they need to have their blazers on display at all times you know (laughs) these kinds of things and I think that's that's a direct result of this um false belief that if we keep children very tightly under control everything will be all right and I think the opposite is true I think they, they start to fracture I'm going to say it. I think I've said it in every podcast since we went into lockdown. Gavin Williamson has done exactly what he said he was going to do. He said silent corridors, and for a period of time, they were definitely silent. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's done what he said in that respect. Nothing else, because everything else is horrific. Yeah. But at least at least he got that one right, in fairness. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I, I'm, I'm active on, on, on social media, and I think we all are. And I think... Um, 
I think traditionalist versus futurist is is this thing that, that everybody thinks it's a battle, and everybody thinks that we're going to pigeonhole this, this whole thing of now. Um, I'm not going to say the names, but the, the individuals who then think, oh, you know what, um, tech is 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 bad, screen time, online bullying. This is you're going to stand, you're going to sit in rows, and you look look at the front, and all of this mechanism, and all of a sudden, now we've gone into lockdown. Those same people are now creating our online provision, trying to pigeonhole the traditionalist views in terms of now that the people think it's a good idea, and then go, "Oh yeah, you know, look how look how good this is." And I'm like, "These are the people who said absolutely no chance that you should sit in a class and never use technology, and now they're instructing and advising people actually how it should be done." Yeah. And I know Bob Harrison. I saw is. Bob has got a, I don't know if you know Bob, Bob has got a big bee in his bonnet around stop using the word remote. And he's now got this definition and saying remote learning is basically students doing it on their own. But actually yeah. through heavy planned, supportive learning online, it can be done through a blended approach. And he, he, he is right. But yeah. I think it's that confusing terminology because, let's be honest, do they actually know what they're talking about? Well, I th- you know... As a, as a kind of port in a storm, um, I'm sure some of these resources serve the purpose, but they're pretty dull, to be honest, if I'm, and, and, and they're pretty kind of um, basic in terms of, you know, it's somebody talking with a PowerPoint and it's it's not really thinking about how you might group children or get them thinking independently. or um, So in, in a crisis, sure, I appreciate the fact that people came up and gave the time and did something, but to be selling that now as you know a, an outstanding package of materials, I think is a bit cheeky, to be honest. And and I don't know. I've only heard this. I, I don't know whether it's fake news or not. But I'm going to have a, a discussion about it. Somebody said that actually the the Oak National, I think that's the correct term. I called it Oak Bank the other day. Actually, even though there was money put in from the government, it's not owned by us in terms of uh, in terms of the public. It's not owned by the government. Actually, it's owned by a board, and it's potentially going to be floated at 100 million. And actually, that money, even though we've put 4 million in or whatever it is now, actually doesn't belong to us in terms of the public. Actually, it's owned by somebody else and shareholders, and they will make a profit out of it. That can't, Surely that can't be true. I don't, I don't I, to be honest, I don't know, but it, the tr- there has been a trend over this last decade of people setting up charities and we all know that a charity can can effectively make profit for its um, trustees if they have a big enough salary or whatever it is so it, it it's all it's not always straightforward that the charities are actually charities but we've seen loads of them you know teacher training charities leadership academy training charities go back to teaching come into teaching go to the army come back into te- you know just there's millions there's loads of them not millions an exaggeration but and they're all funded they all get government funding but there's quite a significant private aspect to it as well they're certainly not under government accountability or ownership in in that sense um we see it in covid we see it with contracts going out to circo we see it you know with the test and trace um this government has uh, and almost a, f- a paranoia about giving any money towards public services and a belief that private services are somehow better and yet we continually see them fail right across the sector I- i'm going to start i'm just I- i'm going to try and rein myself in because otherwise i'll just <laughs> sound like i'm just absolutely bashing certain individuals in the government but you talked about the work that you did with brussels and and mm-hmm. and i know that you've done some work in terms of your, your, your phd and, and obviously your books and we'll go on to that but 
it seems absolutely bonkers that we've got this expertise like yourself in terms of a curriculum development and, and how we could shape a new curriculum and, and move forward with things. But actually, it, it's been it's been utilised by so many different countries in, in Belgium and everything else, but not our own. It just seems crazy. So maybe talk to us a little bit that uh, around that in regards to what do you think the curriculum should include around just rather than knowledge base, what else do you think it should include? Um, well, to be fair, there are there are quite a few schools in the UK who are, I've, I've worked with and who are working with other people with sort of slightly broader concepts of what curriculum is. And it, it's it's not that hard. The national curriculum, when you actually look at it, is quite, well, it's quite limited in what it asks children to do. So there's plenty of room, plenty of space around it to build a much richer experience. Uh, it's it's quite parochial. So I'm working in a British school in Brussels at the moment, but we've had to take out a lot of national curriculum because it's not relevant for children there to name the four capital cities of the UK and, you know, all those kinds of like micro details. But for me, I think a good curriculum sits on five pillars, um, you know, and knowledge is one of them. I call that content and credibility. It's, they, they do need to have secure knowledge. But it's about the coherence of that knowledge. Can they apply it? Do they do they re-encounter it? Is it conceptually understood? Um, and then the other three are really compassion, creativity, and community. So, and it's not just are oh, we teaching children to be compassionate and empathetic, but are we teaching them to take act action towards their compassion so that they feel empowered? They go through school learning about, I don't know. Uh, climate change and, and all these terrible things that are happening in the world but unless we empower them with a curriculum that's compassionate towards them that shows them that they can be the change to alter the course of this impending disaster then we're failing in schools and that means they've got to be, get really hands-on and active within their communities so you know we've got kids making wildlife corridors re doing loads of recycling projects we did have them hooking up with elderly people in care homes uh, because we were looking at loneliness as a problem that's in our society. And obviously now that's online. But I think every curriculum objective, not every curriculum objective, but huge parts of the curriculum need to have this kind of very active real world context attached to them so that the children are seeing that they have impact in their world in the now and then, you know, here and now rather than in the future. Because we say to kids all the time, oh, sit down in, in this row in school and listen to this authoritarian teacher and in the future if you comply with this um, you might pass an exam and if you pass that exam you might get a job you know as long as you go to university and spend 40 odd thousand pounds on the privilege um, but a, a five-year-old seven-year-old even a 15-year-old can't conceptualize that future particularly um, some of them don't feel it's within their grasp so what do we do about the present? How do we make those children feel useful and active in the present? And I think project-based learning or kinds of learning that are set within imaginal fictional context but that feel real for children are one way of making learning really present for them. And I think that's really important. I think it's that whole idea, isn't it, of having a of allowing students to have a genuine a genuine audience and that the the work like what are we saying to students when they 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 stay up on a nighttime doing a bit of work, and then it gets stuck with a bit of print stick in a book, and that print stick goes on the shelf, and then and then that book gets taken home by the teacher to mark, 
and then that's it. That's nobody ever sees it. I mean, in the minute, I don't know. In my school, we we've got a policy where books aren't touched uh, because of because of everything that's going on. So <laughs> in the minute, it's literally getting stuck into a book, and that book goes onto a shelf, and nobody ever sees it. Not even the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it. And what are we saying? Especially when I think our primary schools kind of do a really good job at this. Our primary schools, um, at least the ones that I know about, are, do do a really good job of of really um, triggering students' imagination and getting to work on on projects that are relevant to the real world. Um, primary school, like I, I kind of I on Twitter I, I take part. Like I, I think all of us in education do at the minute on the follow follow back Wednesday uh, hashtag. And that and that and that means that I follow a lot of primary school teachers now, uh, whether I want to or not. Uh, so I see a lot of what primary school teachers are doing, and I think it's a some of the stuff they do, some of the creativity, some of the imagination that goes into it is phenomenal. And then I think then we bring them into secondary school in the and like you said, they're in those rows, they're facing the screen. There's a there's a le- there's a bit of a lecture, and they're and they're writing. Book goes on the shelf, and and and, and I, there's probably. There's probably a correlation. I haven't looked into this, but there's probably a correlation between that and and why we're seeing such poor mental health in secondary school as well. Uh, but yeah, I think and and I guess that's where schools like uh, we we we've spoke a lot with the guys from the XP schools in Doncaster, where yeah. they literally describe themselves as a primary school for big kids yeah. because they want to they want to do that. They carry on the projects, they carry on the the integrated learning where they're not they're not just studying history, but they're studying. A pro- they're, they're delving into a project where they bring in some history, they bring in some geography, they bring in some RE, some English, um, and they keep that imagination going. Uh, and they, I think they call it expeditions. And just even just that word expedition, that what it triggers in the imagination. Yeah. Well, you've got, you've got that expeditionary learning uh, movement in America, haven't you? I think it was Ron Berger who set that up. And yeah. talks, what you're saying there reminds me of that hierarchy of audience that he talks about and how at the bottom of that hierarchy of audience is a child just producing work for their teacher to meet some, you know, fairly abstract success criteria. Um, and, and as the child goes up that hierarchy of audience at the top of it is being of service to the world. Um, but, you know, within that, underneath it is presenting to an audience capable of critique. So if children are doing, I don't know, I mean, I've, I've done work with year two where they've been looking at the Great Fire of London because everybody seems to do Great Fire of London in year two. But they've been redesigning the house for the baker and they've been having to take into account the building regulations and, and the rubbish disposal and all that kind of stuff. But then we get a real architect to come in and look at their plans, not just present it to me, because an architect will tell them what materials would be available, what would work, how to get best strength out of materials. Um, you know, and, and when they've got that kind of professional uh input it's the same with another group of schools i've been working with with chester zoo you get a proper zoologist a proper conservationist coming in with the kids and it absolutely heightens the motivation because they feel that this is somebody to impress and somebody whose word can be taken as truth because they do that job every day my my uh my daughter one of my daughters in year two and she's just literally buying uh gonna take in the cereal boxes to build the great fire in london so i i, I get that but i think it's really interesting how when you talk about this idea as a project and how it ties into real world where, where they're seeing this going, it's it's really interesting how when I say to Martha, um, that's the six-year-old, by the way, uh, I said to her, um, what have you been doing at school today? She went, oh, I've been learning about how fire spreads. 
And I was like, right, okay. So I talked to her. So she was saying about, well, uh, wind, and she was talking about how wood takes it and how the houses were close together. So it wasn't just, and she could tell me what date it was, what the name of the baker was, where it started, what did, she could do that. But for, it, for me, it's the, the learning that happens. And now when she's building it, she, I, I remember my nine, my almost 10 year old now, her, her, when she did the same project, uh, she's still really excited about it and still, t and her and the sister are having a conversation about it. And I think how many times, how many, how many examples of things like that do we actually remember from school? There's probably a handful, but, and, and whether, whether we'd ever be able to um, learn more than a handful. But I think it's really interesting where you're saying about that, um, that whole picture around the holistic element of learning and where you were talking about actually, I was really interested as a as a as an RE philosophy teacher about that thing about coherence and about how things fit together and seem to you you can see that yes that piece of knowledge links with that piece of knowledge and actually creates a loop that then they remember because obviously for the, the way the brains are developing when you can make connections obviously that's where it stays in their long term memory isn't it so. I don't. I don't know where I went with that. I just. I just wanted to say that my, my kids did the same thing at um, yeah. Great Fire of London. I think. Yeah, and it's it's getting them hooked. It's getting them hooked in in emotionally hooked in because you know lives were at stake in the Great Fire of London, and that kind of gets people leaning in. But um, also the fact that it's hands on and that they're using their knowledge to create something, to make something, to try and. Um, solve a problem so that call it uh, I can't remember who who came up with the term now but uh, grappling productively with difficulty uh, and that's where you want children to be that they're they're in a difficult situation they're trying to solve problems they're grappling with it and it is difficult but it's also safe because they know that they can make mistakes and it'll be okay but yeah I, I think there's too little of that in terms of the rhetoric movement and I know it can't all be learning through play, like you know, in terms of primary. But actually, um, I saw I think it was yesterday, um, and it, I think it's probably an older article. But this year, um, Finland is moving to um, going to be the first country where subjects are not taught um, for, for quite a few years. They've, they've modelled around the phenomenon model of learning, um, and they're based on topics. So that whole thing of if you are going into to do this topic, actually, you're going to look at a car engine but you're going to learn math, science, and everything else that goes around it, but all based on project-based. And I think, yeah, Finland are doing a great job. Their education system is different to ours. We don't have to take exactly what they're doing and apply it to our context. But it's really interesting that there is a lot of learning to be had that we could mould and change and revolutionise our education system if we just looked at what some of the things that people are doing in different ways and, and learn a lot from primary. Yeah. But I think there's a hierarchical structure where would secondary education really learn from primary because they just think it's playing in the sand and, and hand paintings. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the biggest problems in education, that transition from year six to year seven. You know, I mean, I go into reception classes where kids are going and getting their own scissors and managing their own materials and things like that. And then they go into year, they go into secondary school and the teacher's carefully holding the scissors out, handing the scissors out to the children because she doesn't think they can be trusted to take the scissors themselves. So they go they go back. And I think what you find with year seven is they walk into school, they've got a whole massive building that's probably four times bigger than the one they've been used to. They've got hundreds of teachers' names to learn. They've got loads of other kids' names to learn. Their brains are just completely overloaded with functioning 
in those first few weeks. And what do we do? We test them. And then when they don't come out very well in the test, because the brains are overloaded, we start back teaching them stuff that they already knew when they were in year three. Um, so I think we've got to we've got to really kind of fix that. And we've got to fix this this new weird culture that that children don't have anything of value to add to our classrooms except to sit quietly and, and open their mouths and have information poured into it. And could we apply the learning of for those I know you don't everybody doesn't have to go to university, but I know obviously from my experience in university, that first year is a freebie. Does it really count? But actually mm -hmm. it's about the knowledge that you've already learned, applying to the context of of what you're going to be doing, but also understanding what that looks like in terms of an education system and how it might differ from from um, from primary and uh, secondary and then and then A levels. So maybe year seven should not be a free year, but actually it should be a year to look at resilience and all those other skills rather than just focusing on content of curriculum and actually get students to to apply what they've already learned but in different ways around projects and things like that just in a while trying to learn that they've got an hour bigger class they've got a new friendship group like say they've got loads more teachers they're learning a new environment doing all of that testing them at that time is just completely pointless yeah there's there's no point and um i think settling them in making them feel part of a community getting them kind of again involved in projects where they're grappling with that difficulty you end up doing accelerated progress. About 15 years ago, I was working in a secondary school and we decided that we wanted year seven to be more like primary, and which is quite unusual in a secondary school. But we were like, we were saying, you know, they, we don't really understand where they're at because we don't give, in, give ourselves and them enough time to establish. So what if they had like a home-based teacher who taught them several subjects? So their timetable was, was taught by one person for several subjects, a bit like they would be in primary. And they'd still go to somebody for specialist subjects like in maths or PE. Um, so you'll be, <laughs> you'll be relieved to hear that, Steve. They still got their PE teacher. But so the, the teachers that stepped forward to get involved in this were the English, history, geography, drama, PHSE, uh, a couple of ICT and, and music teachers stepped forward as well. It was completely voluntary. But we rewrote the year seven curriculum, we called it cultural studies. We couldn't really think of anything else. Um, and we just had units like plots and protests. And we looked at how protest had developed through time the different kinds of protest you had children coming up with incredible stuff we had a british museum project where um and other departments did start getting involved but you know great british inventions in science and and great british musicians in music and all that they, they curated the museum for a public expedition uh, exhibition um, and we said to them here's a room that you can just put anything in you you can decide but it has to be something to do with our local area and they chose coal, they chose coal mining because most of the granddads had been in the pits in the 80s, sometimes the dads, but mostly the granddads. Um, and they brought in all sorts of things like chitties for food banks, letters from Arthur Scargill, a lump of coal that one of the granddads had brought out of the pit on the last day, diary entries, newspapers that people, because the families, it was such a big deal to the families, they'd kept memory boxes of these things and the kids just curated this beautiful space. And then I said to them at the end of that, um, I said, well, all museums have a statue in them, don't they? Like when you walk in, there's something in the foyer that makes you think, oh, this is going to be an exciting museum. So what's your, if this is a British museum, what's your statue going to be? And the kids are working, they're creating still images to show me. They've got to do a still image and they've got to do a caption. 
and I'm looking at these two boys who've come from primary school with trouble tattooed on their foreheads. Uh, I was told that they were antisocial, aggressive, they couldn't work in groups, they probably should sit apart and all this kind of stuff. And there they are hugging each other in this still image with a caption underneath saying tolerance. And I'm going, oh, that's great. And I'm taking a picture. And then behind me, there's these other four lads bothering me. And I go, miss, 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 can our statue move? And I'm thinking, no, your statues don't move. You know, I wanted to turn around and go, no, statues don't move. Do what you're told. But I didn't. I turned around and said, why? Um, and they said, well, it's mechanised. And if you put 10p in it, then it moves. And I thought, well, the, you know, we're in Yorkshire and they're always trying to scam money out of you. So I got 10 pence out of my pocket and I was, I was uh, handing it over. And the first image they're showing is a cricket match. Um, you know, there was a bowler and a batter and a fielder. And I'm not an expert in cricket, but I could recognise it as a cricket match. And England had won the Ashes that year and apparently that matters. So they were showing me that. And then I gave them the 10p. And they changed it and the bowler went like pressed his, the center of his hand the palm of his hand with his fingers and the batsman and the fielders went they crouched and went as if to shield themselves uh, and it was really clear just in that instant that they were showing me the seven seven bombings um and i and i just said to them well that that's a really stark image and, and i think it's really powerful so yeah we should have this in our museum but you have to caption it you have to give it a caption and then oh yeah we've already thought of that we're calling it from ashes to ashes and i just thought that was so sophisticated for year seven and really clever um and i nearly shut it down i nearly shut it down and went no statues don't move uh, <laughs> and i'd have never seen it i'd have never known it um and i think we don't give children enough space or credit to come up with those original ideas and we definitely don't give them enough space and credit to tell us what they're worried about because that image was also telling me they want to understand these events that happened over the summer they particularly want to understand why somebody would get on a bus or get on a tube and try and blow it up so when we went into our plots and protests unit after that that was clearly something that we were going to put at the heart of it to look at why some people turned to violence to protest and some people have peaceful protests so you know and that's what i mean by coherence you know when one unit one idea from a child leads into another and you create your curriculum around those needs and that's not without knowledge or without rigor but it's responding to the needs of the children i think it's about it's about when we've had this conversation a few times it's it's what leads the curriculum is mm. is it just knowledge mm. or is it the application of knowledge and uh, we've we i think i think I think it was me and me and Ben. We did a podcast a, a few months ago, and we just stayed on chatting about this. In that, um, do we, is is putting knowledge before the application, putting the horse before the cart, essentially. In that, should should we should we start with the application? Should we start with the project? Should we start with what 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 the students want to learn, yeah. and then and then and then bring the knowledge in, then then actually support it with the knowledge. Instead of going right, this is what we need to know. Now let's see what we can do with it. It just seems it seems the wrong way around, and I think, um, and I think that's what the knowledge based curriculum. And we we went there. Um, I knew we would at some point. The that knowledge based curriculum seems to put the 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 cart before the horse. Yeah. Um, whereas whereas kind of the the project based stuff and. And I, I even I don't even want to call it that because because within the realms of of that world of knowledge based curriculum where the, where where the schools that follow it, project based learning has almost become like a like a, a, a 
a dirty word essentially it's become like you, you don't well, you don't want to mention it because you're like oh like oh that's not like proper academic education um so i'm reluctant to call it that because i think we probably need to rebrand it some somewhat um but but it's still vitally important and it's and it's still but it's seen with that kind of with oh well, no that was tried that was tried a few years ago and it didn't work Oh, we, we tried that. Schools went through a phase of that and it didn't work. Um, whereas actually when it's when when the knowledge is given the context or the con the context demands the knowledge. I think that's what I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like you want to create a context where it demands certain knowledge. Um and then knowledge has a purpose. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, because without it, there's no. What's the purpose? It's just learning some knowledge for 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 an exam paper. Um, what, what's all that about? But I mean, that's the education system, isn't it? But yeah, the uh, <laughs> it's should we not should we not start with the purpose and then bring in the knowledge we need rather than yeah yeah it's... and starting with big ideas and questions or concepts as well because then then you can build in projects and, and knowledge around that like. You know, just been working with a year six group, um, a group of year six teachers, and they had like lots of different because they'd always been quite creative. They're not under the same constraints. They haven't got Ofsted breathing down the necks or anything like that. Um, but what they've ended up doing is what you describe as project best learning not working in the past. They've they've had a good idea, but it's become oh we could do a bit of this and a bit of that, and you know we'll throw this in and we'll put an experiment here. And it suddenly ends up this loose bag of balls that no one really knows what to do with. Whereas I think if you start with a big idea, like now we've changed, we, we've looked at theirs and we've given them the question of, do we have the power to change the world? And power is their concept for the year. So when they were looking at, you know, they, they, they kind of did World War II. And I was going, well, what is it that is, is about power in World War II? Um, so we then look at how power was abused, how how democracy was reshaped um, in order to take power, and then can we find resonances? Can we find connections across the world today? And so it doesn't become about World War Two anymore. It becomes about this concept of power, and lots of areas of knowledge are being pulled across from the curriculum and there'll be some purists out there who go but they need to know about world war ii but the thing is they'll they'll learn about world war ii in gcse history or you know and they, they also do it in key stage three history and then they do it again if they do it for a level there's, there's no shortage of opportunities to learn about world war ii in our curriculum but learning about power tyranny autocracy uh, the corruption of the rule of law <laughs> you know i think that's pretty good for year six to be looking at right now yeah, hundred percent agree. And you know what? I'm sat there thinking, like that wasn't like I did history right up at A level, and uh, it wasn't my experience of history. It's about the 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 recollection of facts, and can I remember those things? And it's it, it's just it just seems like maybe 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 I'm just naive, and maybe I just kind of want something more for my own children, or maybe maybe just don't. Like, this is somebody, I, I use this example quite a lot. I know they've all said that we always say this. But my, one of my examples is I did um, GCSE Latin and A-level Latin. And I had to conjugate, there you go, there you go, 1,500 Latin verbs for my GCSE. And, like, why? I had to learn these words off by art. 
mm. like in, in, a, in a language that is not spoken anymore and mm. I have to be able to conjugate them. I had to be, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Latin isn't, I loved it. I loved the culture, but it wasn't necessarily about the fact that I could know those what those words meant because I could just Google them now anyway. It's, mm. that, it's that something that, that mattered and I think uh, one of the phrases that I really like, um, you've, you, you use quite a lot, is about that you've got to make whatever you're teaching, you need to make it matter. So it, it's sort of like where Dan was talking about like, something that the students care about but you're also talking about there something well we're talking about real life what's happening now what's happening in china what's happening in in russia what's happening in the us or even in the uk that kind of actually shows um like the, the whole concept of like the kids read 1984 mm. and uh, and think nah that's not possible and then think actually we've all got this app on our phone that every time we go into somewhere we've got to scan where we are and that they can tell us in our vicinity, anybody who's been around us that's got this, that might potentially have symptoms and they know exactly what we're doing and where we are at any one point. That sounds like 1984 to me. It sounds like 1984 when you when you think, yeah. actually, the CCTV, you caught on, the amount of times you caught on CCTV, you think, wow, no, 1984 is impossible. But the students can then actually read it and think, well, how far away from that really are we? It's that making it matter. However, yeah. I don't want to just get. I, want, I don't want to do a gloom guy because I know that you, um, your, your, uh, your, one of your books was about a curriculum of hope, and mm -hmm. uh, it, I think I think it's, it'd be really great to to kind of go there, um, mm -hmm. in terms of hope and about what is not Stephen Hope because that that would definitely wouldn't be a great curriculum. It lasts about it lasts about, <laughs> it lasts about three days, um, and then that's it. We've gone through everything that he knows. <laughs> sorry, mate. Sorry. <laughs> We all know that, but don't stop telling people <laughs> what's going on here. So, what, what was what was the what was the kind of the passion around that? Um, well, you know, to be made blunt, really obvious about it, it's uh, giving children a sense that there's a hopeful future ahead of them because I think they hear so much negativity, especially now. Don't I mean I wrote it before the pandemic, but um, they hear this negativity and they're not really given any solutions for it at all they're just told to conjugate a few verbs and and work these equations out and somehow it's all going to work out magically brilliantly in the future um and i think you have to practice hope you have to practice like empowerment and agency so even if it's you know i don't know reception children trying to help a, sh a troll who's crying in a shed because he's being bullied by three billy goats and they've got to figure out what to do about it that's that's about putting them in a situation where there's hope to help um, you know, they can negotiate peace between the billy goats and the troll, they can get him home, they can keep him dry, um, and they can solve those problems. But they're in a completely fictional space, which is kind of escapist, but it's still hopeful. And as they go up through school and they encounter more of the real life difficulties, um, it's always within, always framed within this sense of what can we change within our school? What can we change within our local environment? Um, how can we connect with people in our communities so that hope's built from within? I mean, you're from Burnley, aren't you, Ben? And um, I, I, I'm not from Burnley. I don't want to actually, sorry, I know you were born in Burnley, but I'm, I'm, a, Blackburn, I'm a Blackburn fan. So I can't I, really say that I'm from Burnley. I was working in Burnley. Oh, no, I'm talking to the enemy. <laughs> I didn't know. I heard that little burn, which is a Blackburn, right, proper sign of Blackburn, that, isn't it? But, um, you know, when I, I grew up in Burnley and, and, I, and I felt that the message that I was getting as I was growing up was that the ultimate goal was to get out of there. Um, and I think we have this concept of social mobility that's about emptying communities of all their potential 
um, because you know we've we've created this idea of if you stay here, you're somehow a loser. Um, you know, I, I went to Oldham, so I'm not really <laughs> not really moved that far away. But we should be building from within, and I think that starts in schools. It starts with children in schools connecting with their communities, feeling proud of the communities, strengthening the communities, and perhaps growing up with the aspiration or ambition to. Um, you know, to, to effect change within that community. And there's no shame in not moving away. Yeah, I think I've spoke about it before in terms of um, some learnings and a lot of reading I did around the Highlands element during terms of online learning. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, I might be wrong with this, but I think one of the reasons they wanted to keep um, these learners in their community, they were finding a lot of learners that were travelling to big cities to universities and colleges and everything else away from um, the rural elements because to access quality, high quality learning, you can understand that. But those people were then saying, "I'm not coming back because," and they were losing that element, the, the 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 community feel, the development, the aging population, all that kind of thing. So one of the reasons, and, and obviously to, to tap into the high quality of education, but I think that was so important, and they saw that and said, "We don't want to lose these vital." resource in terms of humans to, to to our communities in terms of the highlands so what we'll do is we'll bring learning to them and it's been such a successful project that we should potentially look at that that like you say why should you move away from rural locations and why should you have to leave these cities because uh, i know wales has been through all of that transition in terms of um valleys and things like that you know, it's, a, it's a dead town because we no longer have this but mm. it, it's so much more than that isn't it in terms of that that feeling the community community i mean i'm yeah. going somewhere um but then that link of online and i think we talk about in terms of online blended learning and everything else in terms of that environment but i think one thing that's so important and and, and a shout out to, to sammy who works in my team we, we we know sammy sammy lambert she's she's fantastic is around the work that she's doing with teachers around building communities online mm. um that how important is it when students are in a classroom they have that peer learning they have the communities and all that element but when they're online we just think that actually what we're going to do to is teach them in isolation you're going to sit and listen to me and that's it uh, and i think all of that i know i've gone around the house of the year but i think community online uh, in terms of local community is so important mm. and it's such a big thing that we need to focus on um i don't know where i've gone with it i've rambled i've lost my no, train of thought I mean, I know what you mean, and what you're saying is, in some ways, I mean, people shouldn't be put off wanting moving away if they want to move away. But I think quite often we get we get people who would quite like to have stayed who feel somehow embarrassed if they do, and I think that's the difference. And so whether it's online learning and allowing people to train, um, you know, or educate at a distance, but then use that information or that that skill to enhance their communities. Or whether it's just about sort of in more kind of industrial areas that are sort of or post-industrial areas that have been really struggling, whether it's about you know reinventing and rebuilding. I mean, you do get some really pockets, some pockets of real enterprise in those areas, um, usually around the creative industries. But of course, they've been decimated by COVID. So I really don't worry. I, I really worry about how these towns are going to rebuild um, after this. Well, like, um, I feel like I'm bashing them, but I think he said, just go retrain and do a different job. I know. I mean... £23 billion the creative industry has put into the economy, and he says, oh, it's not a viable not a viable profession anymore. 
I think I talk a lot in terms of uh, the four C's uh, and uh, what we're trying to build in terms of a curriculum uh, where I work in terms of it's important in terms of, I know it goes back to subject and, and, and knowledge, but also that holistic communication, collaboration, critical thinking and creativity, creativity, whether you're in a creative industry or not, how vital mm. that skill is mm. and actually what learnings can we do from that industry? Those people are absolutely vital, whether people see it or not. Because the learnings that they can, why have they got that and they can do that element? It's such an important part to any industry. Losing that, regardless of the money that it brings into the country and the economy as well, is just bonkers. Mm. It just seems absolutely madness. It's like just go work in an office then. Yeah. We're, not all, we're not all built to work in an office. No. <laughs> well, even people working who work in offices are not working in offices now, right now. So yeah, and I don't think I don't think no, and, and that's it. I think we've got um, in, in the area that I work in, in, in the college, we've got uh, creative industries and computing in there. And um, pe people are like, it, it, we've had one of the areas that we've got is business and travel as well. So we've had a, a greater increase in travel, travel students than we've ever had when the industry is falling apart. What does that, what does that say? I don't, I don't know. I, we keep asking the question, why have we got more students choosing travel, tourism and hospitality than we've ever had, despite that being a, being an area. But then we've also been looking at like the arts and music and all those kind of things and and, and the things that students get from those those curriculum areas, um you, you you can't you can't pick up elsewhere or you don't you don't and it and I yeah I don't know. It just it just feels like that whole not just not just like the, the economic sector in, like now, but for the last However many years, 10, 15, 20 years, we've got a friend, Paul Farrell, who's a music teacher. Just like He just says the funding had just been sapped out of the arts, just mm -hmm. sapped out of it and, and, and in education and as well as the, the wider, like I said, the wider sector. But in education, it's just music and art and drama. They're just, they're not, they're not the important things anymore, which is, which is so, which is so crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is crazy. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember. Um, before you know, before twenty ten, uh, the last Labour government had an initiative called Creative Partnerships. Um, we're part of it. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they poured loads of money, and it was Creative Partnerships that helped fund that curriculum of you know the cultural studies curriculum that I was talking about because it allowed us to like work with lots of different people. Um, but it gave so much work to artists, so much work, um, you know, to people who were sort of going into that gig economy lifestyle. Um, but also their expertise in schools and, and working side by side and team teaching with, with teachers just really enhanced the skill set that teachers had, the knowledge that teachers had. Um, so it had like an economic boost. It, it was providing a lot of work for artists. And I think it had a really powerful educational boost mm. as well because that alternative perspective coming into a school, and we all know it, don't we? Sometimes when you're in school, you get a bit of tunnel vision, yeah. you know, tick box tunnel vision culture. Um, having that complete, completely different perspective coming in was really powerful. And then, of course, you know, you get a change of government and it goes, and it doesn't matter which change of government it is in some ways, well, it does, but it they'll always throw out the old thing and then try and bring in their new thing because constantly caught on this wheel of change all the yeah. time that creative partners i don't know if you i don't could me and dan used to work at the same secondary school in accrington um and um creative partners 
uh, we had uh, we had a, a great guy we worked with called Jess Dolan. He was part of that process, and uh, our principal at the time was so excited about getting artists. Now, remember, we did this one of the craziest things I have ever ever experienced. And we had this day where every student was off timetable, and we had artists in everywhere. And like, I have never seen more crazy, crazy coloured hair and wacky pants but like they were they were everywhere like and we, they were doing things in the yard where they were do, where they were painting like the floor and then we, we did these russian dolls where we we made these russian dolls and then they would talk about identity and different things but they'd make them into huge russian dolls that fitted inside each other we did load there was, there was one woman i remember this who just walked around as a fox all day and like <laughs> literally she walked around and she'd just pop into rooms and just be a fox and like people like do some move as a fox and then walk out and like this was all part of like we had people <laughs> do you know them like like silks we had them hanging in in like the main hall of uh we had a, we have a thoroughfare that was called the street and they were, they were hanging and they were just on these silks pretty much all day and the kids were just like look at them and there was no like well let's look at them and let's look at their angles and let's look at how they which parts of their body they move they were just doing it yeah. And it was just cool. Uh, yeah. as, as, it was it was mental. It was absolutely mental where this this thing was but it was but it was cool. Yeah, yeah. And and the conversations that were stimulated and the memories of it is is really powerful. Just changing the school environment to becoming like an exhibition festival space is, you know, it's one day, isn't it? No one's gonna die. <laughs> I'm not gonna fail the GCSEs because one day you turn, you had a fox running around. <laughs> I'm gonna Deborah, I'm gonna shift gear. Um just because I'm just conscious of, of the time. And uh, I think I think we we really want to touch on this. And I kinda I brought it up earlier, uh, but I think it'd be good to return to it in terms of the whole the whole thing of exams. Um and in, in my school, literally today we had a bit of an emergency meeting this morning because of what's happening in Scotland. So if you listen if if for listeners who are listening to this um, at another time, uh, in the news yesterday, Scotland kind of announced that they their equivalent of the GCSEs wouldn't be happening um, in year twenty twenty one, and it would be kind of the the centre assessment style grades that that happened last year uh, due to COVID, and and that kind of triggered a, a bit of a thing in our school this morning where we thought, well, you know what, for this last six months, the the the, the UK government have followed Scotland on everything education. So um, this this potentially could happen uh, within England where we are. Um, so uh, and we've got some we've got some mocks coming up for our year, year 11s, and we wanted to drive home to our year 11s um, just the reality that mocks that they get in these mocks could be used as as an indicator of their actual mocks. Um, yeah. Uh, it's it's it's. I know you've. Um, I'm just looking at your website now, and you've 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 got a blog on it from from August. There, it'd just be, it'd be great to get into your thoughts because I think every if people who listen to this podcast know our thoughts on this, um, and we we love having a, a good whinge about it and a good a good kind of let's imagine what could be possible conversation. But it'd be great to, to get your take on it, Deborah. Um, well, I think the first thing is that the exams fiasco this year and that whole like mutant algorithm ninja turtle thing um, was just expo exposed, didn't it? What what was already a problem? Because if you put into your calculations the expectation 
that 40% of kids would have messed up on the day through no real fault of their own. You know, they had hay fever or the dog died or they broke up with a girlfriend or boyfriend or they were actually seriously bereaved or ill. Um, the, the, the system functions and operates on the expectation of those disastrous events happening to kids. And then you randomly try and put that into an algorithm and distribute it unfairly across a population. I'd, I can't imagine the insanity that somebody must have to think that's somehow acceptable. But, but, it, but also, just, just to stop you before you go on, the, the, the fact that, that they thought, oh, let's, put, let's try and put that element into the algorithm, like, amazing, like, the intention there. Mm -hmm. But why isn't that intention there every year? When yes. when 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 sixteen years of learning has boiled down into a three hour exam. Well, exactly. So so it exposes that fundamental unfairness of the system because every year we're failing kids on the basis of the fact that they were perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly capable, but they just had a bad day. You know, and I, I bet most of us can think of an exam where we kind of forgot to turn the paper over or missed a question or misread a word or whatever it is. And we've, as a society, we've started to tolerate this as somehow normal, but it's not normal. It's it's absolutely mad. Um, so I think we need to have a bigger conversation about exams full stop and especially exams that are linear and there's just one chance on one day at least if you have modular exams there's a second chance isn't there um but then i think with this particular situation now i, I think the government should have said unless they're like incon inconceivably stupid which is a possibility well, it is, isn't it? <laughs> well they, they have known i reckon they've known that a second wave will come over the autumn and winter that it was pretty inevitable they were just trying to sort of gloss over everything they should have sat, sat down in September and said, right, this is going to happen. Whether, even if it's all magically gone by next May, June, kids are going to have had a massively disrupted and a disproportionately massively disrupted year. You know, my, my son in year nine, so it's not affecting his GCSEs directly, but he's now on his second period of self-isolation in a month. So he only went back to school for a week and then he's back out. He's back out again now for another two weeks. He'll have done three weeks in seven at uh, this half term and year 11 are out for the second time so those year 11s haven't got the same experience as another school in Cornwall that hasn't had any cases and had no self-isolation so there's absolutely no basis from which you can argue now that this, there's a parity of experience for these children and they knew that was going to happen it was obvious once you started sending kids back to school so what they should have done then and what they should do now and immediately is say we're going to move towards a combined system of test results from school that have been done and you can't even guarantee they're going to be done in exam conditions because what if you've got six kids off who are self-isolating and you've got a mock exam so they're going to have to be done in some kind of low stakes you know testing condition and some a portfolio or you know a project that they submit for moderation just as you used to when you had coursework and that needs to be moderated, I think, at three levels. It needs to be moderated at departmental and into school level. So within your own school, there's a moderation. And those of us are old enough to remember coursework. We did this anyway, didn't we? And then, um, you know, a local moderation, perhaps with a partner school, which Ofsted are starting to talk about at the moment a little bit. And then you have a, a, a national moderation at exam board level where they take a sample of students' work and they check the grades against whatever they want to check it against last three years progress and everything else 
Um, I, I think that's what should happen, but I, I fear that what, what's actually going to happen is a load of fudging and denying and pretending everything's all right, and then suddenly another CAG or, you know, worse solution being presented to us. Uh, I'm, I, it's that league table thing, isn't it? Mm. That's the uh, like we we hate endpoint assessment. Like like as a as a like I work in apprenticeships, and there's now endpoint assessments in apprenticeships. Like which is just do, makes no sense. The whole nature of an apprenticeship is you are learning on the job as you go, not so that you can pass a flipping exam at the end or mm. passing into it's just mental but it's because we have a system and we've talked we talk about this this is this is definitely something we talk about every single podcast that that idea that we've got to rank people mm. and somehow last year's results can't stray too far away from this year's results yeah. but they can't we, we do need to see a positive increase because then it suggests that the government are doing a great job and yeah. um, uh, it's, it's just it's just wrong we're playing with we're playing with kids lives and we're gonna have a we're gonna have a whole heap of sh children this is not like one cohort of exam students is it it's not the the class of 2020s exams this is the class of the last the next probably two or three years where we yeah. need to think about it we had lord jim knight on a few months ago and who and and, and obviously he t well one of the things he talked about was about trusting teachers and it was it, this was pre-pandemic this was pre all the stuff and he was saying actually much of this issue is because we have to have high we have high stakes performance tables that that rank people and have that competition element in schools and colleges but also it's because we don't trust teachers as professionals yeah. And, yeah. and and, and it, it, it's ludicrous isn't it yeah it's, there's an endemic lack of trust in teachers and and you know, and if you if you bear in mind the importance of rank ordering on that off that off not off off qual algorithm the assumption that every teacher would be able to look at their kids and somehow put them into a rank order uh, was was inbuilt into the system. This this kind of we've we've just got it's like a worm in our brains assuming that all human beings can just be sorted into some kind of rank order. The best people at assessing in the education system are early years teachers because kids can't write. And if kids can't write, you've got to pay attention to what they do, what they say, how they interact, what they play with, what they, what they, you know, sort of explore. Um, they're absolute masters at it, at seeing what kids are capable of. And I think if we all learned from that practice and it went up, rather than us trying to force, you know, things down onto young children, we're better off for it. Here, here. <laughs> I think you've I think you've stunned us into it. I know you were going to jump on, weren't you, Steve? Thanks for muting and 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 over. Dan, were you going to speak? No, I'm all joking. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting here and just thinking it makes sense. And I think it's that wave, isn't it? You know, of and and change happens because if people aren't kicked off, they really wanted they how long did they go no no there's no no issue with it we're not backtracking we're not backtracking it was only that absolute disgust and the wave of 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 the nation that just said absolutely no we're not having it change it hmm. that without it they thought they i think they still think it was a good idea whether they think it's a good idea or actually whether, I, I don't it, it amazes me i'm thinking sitting there and thinking do they think it's a good idea or is it just the path of least resistance, that this is what they've always done. They don't know how to change it. 
So what they're going to do is just this is the easiest thing for us to do. We're going to have this algorithm, and we're going to pigeonhole people into it. We're also going to do it based on demographic. We're going to do it based on where you where you actually come from, based on the fact that what your 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 brothers and your sisters came out with a few years ago, and we're going to then say now this is what you've got because of it. Mm. And I just like it's just I'm just sitting here and I'm I'm just thinking this can't be right. They can't. And I know you said it, the cat, they're stupid. They can't be. They must know this is incorrect. But yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and, and I don't, I think I saw it on the news and I was sitting there and I was thinking, this is really interesting because the news article seemed to ex- explain that just the north of England, in terms of the, the lockdown, it's not happening anywhere else past a certain, like it's just north of the wall. And actually, it's those northerners that are, are causing all the mayhem. So I'm thinking, sitting there thinking, do they think that they're still going to do GCSEs for the rest of the nation and just say the Northerners will just, I don't know, be given a lump of coal because they've been naughty for Christmas? I don't know what they think is going to happen. Yeah. But I was thinking, but the compared cities that were, in terms of the population, they compared those to densely populated cities. So I don't know the demographic, and somebody's going to say, well, actually, that's the same. But Bristol to Liverpool or Manchester in terms of the university, and I don't know whether that's – but I was like, doesn't sound and, – and then I think it was Norwich – and I was like, Norwich is not comparable to to Liverpool and Manchester. I'm sorry, it isn't. And I was like, it, and the, it just seems like it's trying to fudge in terms of that negative element. And they do this with education of, no, we're right, but this is what's happening and it's because of this. And mm. they did that and scapegoating and all that kind of thing. The education system needs to change. And I think it's taken potentially a pandemic yeah. And, and 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 many many annoyed parents and families and kids to then say right no you're changing it now yeah. and I well, don't I think, think it should be yeah, yeah sorry we go need, on well, I just think we need more of that annoyance we need that wave of you know parents opening their eyes and seeing that this has been a terrible year but actually it's a terrible year every year for a lot of kids um, and we need more outrage about that so yeah. just to change the system because I know a computer algorithm has done it. We've been using a very similar system to judge kids for years Correct. and years. And I know it's a computer and you can blame a computer, but they have been using a very similar system for so many years now that actually, do we dare? It's not like I've been teaching my year 11s. I'm doing like an ethic, like a mini ethics course with them. And we've been looking at the ethics of artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence will, will, uh, perform the same discrimination mm-hmm. as the people who program it. Yeah, that's what one of the one of the major arguments against yeah. decisions made by artificial intelligence yeah. that they they're fraught with discrimination because the people who program them put their put in not not always consciously but put the put their yeah. bias within the, within those algorithms and that's what we see. Yeah. I was, seen a, I was a, having a conversation actually, example of it around the OOC HR conference. I mean, looking at um, um, automation in terms of processes for HR. And they were saying, we should be able to automate uh, and people should give it to artificial intelligence. And they should be able to go through uh, a supporting statement or a job description and say, right, no, this is person is going to be accepted or not. The problem is that the data that the, the data sets that that has been used, and it's been tried and failed before, is taken on the fact that it's got white men of a certain age in hierarchical leadership roles. So actually, it's going to be biased towards it because of the data set that they're putting in. And that's the issue that you've got. It's in terms of the tuning and the information that goes in. You put bad data in, you get bad data out. Yeah. That, that, that's yeah, fact. That's and, and that's what they've done. Mm. 
Yeah. I, I'm going to move off my soapbox uh, <laughs> and I'm going to just bring it back down and I'm just going to, I know we could go on for, for all night, couldn't we, guys? Because I say this all the time. But it's been an absolute pleasure, Deborah. I think it's it's been. I've sit there and I listen, and I'm thinking something's got to change. Hopefully, it is. And I think with key decision makers and, and influencers like yourself, um, I think education um, will start to change. Um, uh, it might have taken a pandemic, but I think we're on the cusp of something now. So oh, thank you very much for coming yeah. on. It's great to meet you all. See you later. It's been great. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Deborah. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.